Let's pray together and ask for God's grace. Lord Jesus, would you grant to us mercy as we read the word? We might understand in greater measure all that you are and all that you have done for us. I ask you, Father, to graciously pour forth your spirit. We are desperate. We need help to understand and then to live in light of this. Father, it challenges the, that part in us that uh, wants to rebel and reject and run from many of these truths. And I ask that you would grant to us grace to humbly receive this word planted in us. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, you know, I, I like the movies or I like um, books that leave the suspense so that you're, you're going along and you're, you don't really know exactly all that's going on, but, but it's building up more and more and more. And then finally the, the thing is kind of revealed to you and it's greatly satisfying and encouraging. Well, Matthew doesn't write his gospel that way. The gospel writer, Matthew, just puts it right in front of us as to what he wants us to understand. He is very clear that he wants you and I to read this gospel and and find Christ to be the Messiah, the promised of God, the one that would be a blessing to all the nations. He he says that right up front. He's very clear that he wants his readership to understand this Jesus that you're reading about in this gospel is the, the king promised from long ago that he's finally come. Now, if you think about it, you know, we started with a genealogy in chapter 1. And in the genealogy, he was very quick to say, no, he's the son of Abraham. Remember Abraham back in Genesis 12, all those promises of God, all the blessings were going to flow through the seed of Abraham. And he also, we learned he's the son of David. So, you know, that Davidic king that David was writing about, that promised king with an eternal kingdom, that's the son of David. So genealogy is very quick. Then we looked at Last week, chapter 1, 18 to 25, this birth, no human father. I mean, this miraculous conception by the Spirit. Unique God-man, able to save, but God dwelling with us through the incarnation. I mean, Matthew is excited for you to say this Jesus is no ordinary character. Radically unique. And, And then we come to this passage, and even in the announcing of this Jesus as coming, there's going to be a radical response to this news. In other words, Matthew is saying, hey, after it was announced that he's born, now look at how people responded to him. You know, in Scripture, it's always the revelation of God, the response of man. God reveals himself, man is supposed to respond. So if you will, turn with me to Matthew chapter 2, and let's see what kind of responses um, this Jesus received. Matthew chapter 2, verse 1, and I'll read through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod some of the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. 
After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with a great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, just real quick, verse 1, I think, I think Matthew is trying to clear up any possible confusion we might have in this text. He, he identifies this birthplace of the Messiah as Bethlehem. You know, Jesus will come to be known as the Nazarene, that, that he was raised in Nazareth. And so he was known that way. I think Matthew wants to make sure and clear up any confusion. He, he was raised in Nazareth, but, but don't make any mistakes. He was born in Bethlehem. And the reason it's important is because he's trying to keep that lineage that Jesus is the son of David, reminding us that if he's the son of David, he's the actual king. Not only that, but he wants us to know that it confirms what Scripture promised from long ago. This Jesus would be born in Bethlehem, as referenced here. So I think that's the first thing Matthew's getting. Just make sure we don't have any confusion. He was from Nazareth, but he was born in Bethlehem in light of what God had promised long ago. But you notice in this word, he says, behold. In other words, that's kind of like, let me get your attention. Listen to me closely right now. And then he moves into this reception of this king. So these wise men are coming. And these wise men, ironically, are coming to who Matthew calls the king, Herod the king, but they're coming for the king, that is the king of the Jews. And they've seen a star, and they want to worship him. Now, who are the wise men? There's, there's great debate over the identity of these men. I don't know that anybody has a definitive answer other other than wise men generally are these magi. They were, you know, studied astrology and natural sciences. They understood things about medicine. They did. They were trained some in the arts and the magical arts and in dream interpretation. Um, we think that they were, obviously they're from the east, but probably Babylon or, or Persia perhaps because of the gifts that they brought were native to those lands. Uh, the most likely place they would have come from probably would have been Babylon why? Because there was a group of exiled Jews still there who could have taught them about the nature of this coming Christ. Or even uh, Daniel was from Babylon. He was even called a Magi. And so he, he was, could have informed, you know, the stories that he told, even though it was hundreds of years before, could have remained. And, and so most likely from Babylon. But it doesn't really matter. Matthew's not so concerned with the identity of these men as much as he is their intent. It says they came to worship Christ. I mean, that was the intent of their long journey. Now, there are many questions I know that you probably have about this text, you know, how they know it was his star, and how can you see a star stop and, and, and go over? I mean, what's this all about? And, and then tradition gets in and kind of muddles it up. Tradition you know, put forth the idea that there were three wise men because there were three gifts, presumably, but there may be many, many more, probably a lot more than three. It could have been two dozen magi. They would have come with camels. They would have had porters and servants. It would have been a huge entourage. Not only that, but some traditions, uh, tradition puts forth that they arrived at the Christ child at the same time that the shepherds did. Now, that would have been a miracle if they all would have appeared there. But if you notice in the text, they went to the house. 
So it could have been a year, a two, two years after the birth of Christ, that these magi came. Tradition also puts forth this idea that, that they were the kings from the Orient. You know, we three kings of Orient, it has to be now changed to aren't, um, as opposed to are. That's the, the, the hymn that kind of generated out of the tradition. The magi were later baptized, tradition says. All of that's just, it has no basis in the text. It's just tradition. What we know is simply this. They saw something in the sky that led them to believe, perhaps with the influence of these exiled Jews, that this was the sign from God that he was finally bringing forth the promise of his son to save the world. That's what we know. God provident. People want to say, well, in 7 BC, Saturn and, and, and Jupiter did line up and caused a bright phenomena in the sky, and, and it occurred repeatedly over a number of years. That may be true, too. I, I don't know how God did it. We don't know. Matthew doesn't tell us. What we do know this, it, we know is this, is God providentially organized things such that he uses his creation to shine a light on the son that was to be born. That he was drawing people to him, like in Isaiah 60, we're reminded, he says, and nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. They shall bring gold and frankincense. Does this apply to Christ? Easily could. That God is bringing people from afar to respond to his gift to the world of Christ. That's really what these couple of verses are all about. I mean, this coming king. I mean, it's clear. God wants men and women to worship the Son. Why? Because he's initiating a kingdom. We learn a couple things about his kingdom. Number one, it'll be a universal kingdom. He'll have a universal reign. It's interesting that Matthew doesn't record about the shepherds coming. He goes right for the magi. Why? He's showing that the magi coming from the east are Gentiles from other nations that are coming to worship Christ. He doesn't reference the shepherds. And why? Well, because he's already told us about he's the son of Abraham. Do you remember the promise to Abraham, chapter 12, that through Abraham, who will be blessed? All the nations. And so what, is, what does God do? He brings the nations. The first group to worship Christ are the nations. Incidentally, you think about the end of Matthew. Where does he send the church? To the nations. It's to the nations because he wants to be worshipped by the nations. God wants the Son held up so that all the nations gather around Christ and worship him. In fact, you know the passage in uh, Revelation chapter 5, kind of a picture of what we'll be doing. They sang a new song. You are worthy. Now, we will be speaking to Christ. You are worthy to take the scroll to open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men from every tribe, language, people, and what? Nation. So it's important that we see this coming of Christ was so that the nations would worship him. So his, his reign is not just for Israel. Christ is the true Israel to save the nations. Now, secondly, his reign is absolute. Look at these wise men. They were men of stature in their culture. They come and they bow down before this king. They worship him. I'm sure they didn't understand everything about the nature of Christ, but they understood that heaven was being arranged to say, here is the child of promise. And so if heaven is moving for this king, then he must be king over heaven and over earth that he is magnificent overall. And it makes you think about Philippians chapter 2, when Paul writes about every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord 
in the heavens, on, in the earth, and even under the earth. So you see this rain is it's universal, it's absolute. But you also see the rain will be eternal. We don't see it so much here, but the rain will be eternal, thinking back on that passage in, in 2 Samuel. That it's beginning now. Remember, and we're going to see this in chapter 3 in particular, the kingdom of Christ is inaugurated with his birth. It isn't consummated in his death. It's established, but it will be consummated in his return. So we live in that age now where his kingdom is growing, expanding. It's like leaven. It's like the mustard seed. It starts small, but it gets very large and very glorious where all the birds of the air sit in its branches. Remember, all the birds of the air are references to all the nations coming to Christ. So it's going to be an eternal kingdom, but it's also a gracious kingdom. I mean, God doesn't come with thunderbolts and lightning. He just comes with a baby. And he draws these magi to himself. These pagans that had no hope of being saved. They, had, they weren't drawn close to the covenants. They weren't like the religious leaders that had all the covenants and the scriptures and the history of Israel. They're drawn from afar. That's the nature of God. He's gracious to the lost. He's gracious to the ignorant. It's a gracious kingdom. We're going to see how kind God is as the sun walks out the kingdom. So, folks, you've got to kind of look at this text. It's given as an indicative. This is what happened. In other words, there's no debating. We're not to debate. Did this really happen or did it not? It happened. Now, how we respond to it's a matter of debate, but not did it happen. So, how did they respond to it? How will you respond to it? Because it's very interesting how many different responses we have in this text. Look with me back in the text uh, in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. Of course he was troubled. Herod's the king. Herod was by king, by the way, from 40 B.C. to 4 B.C. He was not a full-blooded Jew. He didn't have a right to the throne. He achieved the throne through appointment of Rome, through bribery, manipulation. And although it's written about him that he was administratively gifted, he was a wicked king. And towards the end of his reign, he got absolutely, he was terrifying and fierce in a fit of jealousy and rage, he murdered some of his own family, even his own wife. So you can imagine why if the king's troubled, the town's going to be troubled. Because if it doesn't go well for Herod, it's not going well for us. And so he seeks to find out where this child was going to be born. Notice that they're looking for the king of the Jews, right? The Magi are. And then Herod says, where is the Christ to be born? So he connects the two just as we should. And, of course, these religious leaders tell him. In Micah 5, 2, it's in Bethlehem. Now, what's interesting, too, about that is he doesn't even know that. What kind of king of Israel is he? A, a child raised in the faith would have known Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the son of David. He didn't even know it. And then when told that the prophecy was Bethlehem, he disdains the promises of God and ignores it. And the only reason he asked to know what time the child was born was to figure out the identity, how old would the child be, so I can snuff him out and we'll see that in a few weeks when he does that or tries to do that so here we have herod just a wicked response to jesus now listen jesus in our culture today uh, when we consider him as a healer and a you know a kind of a comforter and a teacher jesus is very acceptable uh, most most people regardless of their belief system have room for that kind of jesus I mean, they do. He's nice. He's sweet. He plays with the animals. He's nice to the kids. He fits into any of the, those faith systems. 
You know, it's kind of like he's a king. Okay, I can accept him as king if he's a king like a figurehead, like the figurehead of England, the Queen of England. She's not making decisions. I mean, she's kind. They're, uh, you know, they're going and opening up hospitals. I know they do more. But a figurehead without the authority will take that kind of figurehead. But that's not what he's saying here. Jesus is coming as king with absolute sovereign rule. This is threatening. Christ has claim on your life. Christ owns you. Christ owns your obedience. You owe, you owe everything to him. This is where it gets a little more threatening. When you begin hearing about this Christ who will sit on a throne, listen to Psalm 2. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel against the Lord and against his Christ, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. In other words, this is the kind of king that Christ is. It's a threat to us. We love our autonomy. We love self-rule. We want to do what we want to do. We don't want people telling us what to do, when to do it. We don't want, we don't want an ethical life placed in front of us. We want to make the decisions. We, we'll obey the rules as long as they suit us. I mean, when someone comes up and says, hey, you have to do this right now, what happens to the hair on the back of your neck? Begins to stand. You don't like to be told what to do. Nobody does. It's in the nature of man to not want to submit particularly to his authority. And so we're threatened. We're not just threatened by his kingship. We're threatened by his message. His message saying that you need help. You need salvation. We're threatened by this message that is a message of humility in an age of strength and pride. We don't like this. Now, I know that most of us here aren't perhaps antagonistic to Christ. There are people in our culture that are. You've read, I'm sure, some stuff from... Uh, Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris, they're kind of the new atheism. It's atheism that's kind of gone evangelistic. So there's much more like Sam Harris writes a book, God is not great. We're going to make sure everybody knows God's not great. And so there's more of an antagonistic flavor to some of the atheists of today trying to get forth their message like we're trying to preach the gospel. They're trying to preach atheism. I don't think that's us here. I mean, most people, if you're that antagonistic to the gospel, you wouldn't come. Unless you're under 18 and your parents are making you. Most of us, though, fit in a different type of rejection. It's more benign. It's not so in your face. Look with me at these leaders, these chief priests. Look at them. When asked where this child was to be born, they tell him in Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, and they quote the whole verse. They were aware of this prophecy. I wonder, too, if they weren't aware of the prophecy in Numbers. Okay, let me draw your mind back to Numbers chapter 24. Israel's crossing the wilderness, heading to the promised land. If you remember the scene, Balak was a king of Moab. He sees this, the people of God coming. He hires Balaam, a prophet, to curse them. Balaam cannot curse them. He can only bless them. And listen to what one of his blessings was. He says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab. Now, I'm sure that applies to David, the king's following, but might it not apply to Christ? I imagine with these students of the scriptures that they were, they may have thought, hmm, 
star, star in numbers. They, you know they would have heard about the shepherds seeing the angels. I mean, Bethlehem was five miles from Jerusalem. These religious leaders were in Jerusalem. They would have heard that story, surely. They would have heard about Mary and Joseph, you'd think. Zacharias, when he saw the angel in the temple when he was working and he was made mute, surely they would have heard that. So what my point is, is that these religious leaders were not ignorant of what was going on. But notice, they didn't go to Bethlehem. They didn't even go out of curiosity. They didn't even go as courtesy. What Matthew is going to be showing us throughout this gospel is what's so obvious to some, and they miss it, and what isn't obvious to others, they get it. You know, these Gentiles come from afar. These religious leaders can't even go to Bethlehem. But Jesus prophesied this about him later. He said, Matthew 8, I tell you, many will come from the east and west and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. John 1.11 says the same thing. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. So there is this benign rejection we see here. It's a benign rejection that they have. This is the rejection of the religious people. Listen to the scriptures. Religious people rejected Christ. All kinds of reasons. Let me just throw out a few flavors for you to consider. There is naturally apathy that is a benign form of rejection. This apathy, this I'm familiar with the gospel. I'm familiar with Christ. And so I'm not that moved by him anymore. They weren't even moved to go to Bethlehem. There's an apathy. You know, we have it with our spouses even. We've grown accustomed to them. We're familiar with them. We don't feel the need to engage them at the level that maybe we did when we were dating or a close friendship. You know, at, you know this familiarity breeds a degree of contempt. We're not as impressed by Christ anymore. That is a benign form of rejection, to consider him less. C.S. Lewis, once writing to a friend, spoke about that, and I've quoted this before, and I just realized that the context was, was different than I originally thought. He was writing and quoting somebody saying, he said this, well, my version of it would be this, <laughs> is that hands, that handle holy things are easily cauterized. In other words, he was making the point he wasn't a professional theologian. And if he were a professional theologian, that handling the glories of the gospel can become familiar and it can lose its zeal, its excitement, its glory. And that's what he was saying he was glad about. There's a familiarity within the American church that is, can be a form of benign rejection. But there's more. There's another type of rejection. Having an admiration for Christ. Having a, a, a respect for Jesus. But, but our feelings towards him are not commensurate with who he is as king. And so we admire him. We think highly of him. We think he's a respectable teacher. He's a good leader. He's good for a lot of people. That's inadequate. That is a benign form of rejection. You're rejecting him as king to whom you owe complete allegiance to. In fact, I, I read a blog on Leo Tolstoy. Of course, a Russian writer, he, uh, and on his faith. And this Maxim Gorky wrote this about, he says, when he speaks about Christ, uh, there's little enthusiasm, no feelings in his words, no spark of real fire. Although at times he admires him, he hardly loves him. Now, is that a faith? In 1 Corinthians 16, 22, it says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Think about that. If you have no love for God, 
in Christ. Let him be accursed. That's kind of threatening. Or, or how about not just admiration, but you have head knowledge. This is classic for American Christianity, is that there is a head knowledge in these religious leaders. They know the scriptures, but they don't have any affections. They don't have any response to what they know. It's the same thing every week. You may learn the scriptures. Are you doing the scriptures? Are there affections that are being developed as you're learning about the scriptures? Head knowledge alone will not save. You can know all the things. In fact, John Newton, you know, the great hymn writer of Amazing Grace, he uh, once was writing to a friend about this theologian he met. And here's what he wrote. He says, Dr. Taylor of Norwich told me one day that he had critically, critically examined every original word in the Old Testament 17 times. And yet he did not see those glorious things in the Scriptures which a plain, enlightened Christian sees in them. The doctor had not the plain man's eyes. A man may be able able to call a broom by 20 names in Latin, Spanish, Dutch, Greek. But my maid, who knows the way to use it, but knows it by only one name, is not far behind. In other words, you can have deep study and have no love for Christ and be rejecting him as he is king. But there's not just that, there's disappointment, which is a form of benign rejection. I mean, disappointment where you are not finding Christ to be all that you wanted him to be. Perhaps you're in a a chronic pain or a chronic struggle. You've prayed for help. It hasn't come the way you thought it should come. You've appealed to Christ. You've prayed for it repeatedly, and it hasn't come. And there's a disappointment in Christ. And there's really a pulling back away. This is what Richard Baxter, another Puritan minister of the 17th century, this is his explanation for the Magi or sorry, for these religious leaders in Matthew 2, he says, before they came, sorry, before he came, that is Jesus, they looked and longed for him and boasted of him and rejoiced in hope of him. But when he came, they could not abide him, but hated him and would not believe that he was indeed the person and therefore persecuted him and put him to death. And the reason was because it was another manner of Christ that the Jews expected. It was one who would bring them riches and liberty. In other words, if Christ is different then sometimes we just pull back, and it's a form of rejection. And, and then last, another form, and what I'm trying to do is speak to you all, because I think this is where you are. I don't think you're the antagonist of, like Herod. I think the way we are in this church is more of this benign rejection of Christ. The other rejection is just, just distractions. We get preoccupied on things we don't understand. We can get caught up in texts like, the star stopped. Well, what does that mean? or the hypostatic union of last week, this God-man. You you get stuck in the particulars of the faith, and you're like, well, how'd that work? Well, I can't understand how that would work. And all these things begin to pile up, and you draw back from Christ, and so your faith in Christ is more abstract, it's more principle. Well, I believe in the idea of Jesus, and there's no passion for the living Christ on his throne right now. So, folks, I'm, I'm asking you if you would consider yourselves right now Are you not walking or are you walking in some form of benign rejection of Christ as your king? As Christ as glorious, the father arranging heaven to say, this is my Christ in whom you are to bow and worship just like these magi. And if you are finding some forms of benign rejection, the the call is simple to repent of these things. 
and to even ask God for a greater desire for these things. Folks, remember, even wanting to desire more of Christ is the beginning step of worship. He's gracious, he's kind, he's merciful. So please do not remain comfortable in that kind of benign a non-in-your-face rejection. Well, we have the, the example to follow. Again, it's interesting that Matthew wants to use magi from the east. Some Gandalfs come here, and they're going to lead us how to worship Christ. Well, look at what they did. Of course, they come into the house, and they bow down. It, how do we respond to Christ rightly? How do we receive Christ rightly? Well, A, there is that humbling of yourself. Have you humbled yourself? The bowing down, prostrate before Christ, lowering yourself under him, showing his superiority over you. These were men of no small stature. They were wise men. They were respected in their community. And yet they humble themselves before Christ. And they worship him. They pay homage to him, showing him to be divine, him to be supreme. I mean, I mean they literally are in awe before this babe. I mean, that's how we receive them. But it's also with joy. Notice in, in verse 10, he says, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Four different words in Greek to mention that they were happy. Now, why? Why are they so strenuous to make sure Matthew wants us to know how happy they were? Well, they saw this Christ as the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Now we will have peace on this earth. Folks, now we will have life eternal. Now we will have a good king to lead us into a good life. And they were happy about that. Remember, worship is not about just reverence, bowing your head, humbling yourself. It's about a joyful reverence. There ought to be a joy. There ought to be a happiness, a satisfaction. Folks, if there is no joy with you, if you have the light and you have no heat, that's a problem. There needs to be heat with the light. Without any heat, I'm wondering what you understand about the light. So there's to be a joy. There's humility. There's joy. There's also faith. They came to this baby, and they're paying homage to him. Now listen, the kid's still nursing on his mother's breast. He's done no teaching. He's done no miracles. He hasn't performed anything. There's still great mystery ahead. There's still great trouble ahead. But he is banking. They are banking all of their hope on this child and the life that he's going to lead and the person that he's going to become. It's like Anna and Simeon in Luke chapter 2. When they saw the child, they rejoiced. Consolation of Israel is now here. Why? Because he's new Israel. He's going to do what Israel didn't do. He's going to fulfill the covenant. He is going to save us. He's going to lead us. And then last, right worship will always have a measure of cost to it. Now, I want to explain what I mean by that. You see that they had to travel probably a 1,000 miles under great pressure, financial. It would have been greatly expensive to travel with this entourage. You know that they received some of the rebuke of the people in their town. We're going to follow a star to find the Messiah that was promised by God. Yeah, you're thinking, we won't see him again. That's quite a trip he's on. But not just that, they they brought out these gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, preachers love this stuff. Because this preaches gold for him being a king and frankincense for the temple worship and myrrh. Perhaps you've heard it. I don't think Matthew is making a big deal out of the gold and frankincense and myrrh at all. I think that they were gifts that were important to them from their land and they're offering them to Christ. And, and the point is this, that, that, that they saw value in these. These are that which is most valuable to us. But in comparison to you, Jesus, they're not even valuable. I'll just give them to you. They're not, that's what worship is about. 
It isn't, it isn't sacrificial to suffer for Christ. It's like any of you mothers, you see your child upstairs in a burning house. Is it a sacrifice to go retrieve them? No. You, just, you love them, and so you run into the house to save them. There's no, people say, wow, you really sacrifice? There's no sacrifice. He's my son. He's my daughter. She's my daughter. So, so worship is about, we don't look at the suffering that we may engage as sacrifice because his worth is far greater than we could ever experience. That's why Paul writes about Jesus. And listen to how he writes this. He says, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, everything, a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. And then he goes on to talk about the power of his resurrection and his sufferings. Both are worth it in light of his great worth. So what we have here is a beautiful Christmas passage, but it applies to us all the time. You, you have God making an announcement through the heavens saying, this is my son, worship him. You have antagonism toward the measure of Christ. We're going to see that in the second half of chapter 2. You have this apathy, this indifference to Jesus, which is really commonplace in much of American evangelicalism. And then you have this adoration. And where are you? I mean, to the non-Christian here, uh, the scriptures are holding themselves out as saying, this has happened. He is king. It's an inaugurated kingdom. That's why he's not sitting on a throne visibly, but he is in heaven right now. That's what the Christian faith teaches. And so indifference or apathy is a form of rejection. And for the Christian here, I would say that when we read this, we're asking ourselves, how is my life submitted to Christ as king? How do I walk in my marriage as I'm thinking about, does his word rule my life? Or do I justify my behaviors based upon the situation I'm in? How, how is he ruling that which I see with my eyes? The words that I say, the honesty with which I speak, the service with which I engage, the money with which I use, does he reign over our lives? There will be one day you see him seated on the throne. We have that in Revelation 4 and 5. But right now, the Christian is seen as their lives are living under the reign of Christ. Why do we do it? Is it hard? Sure, it's hard. Is he worth it? Absolutely. It's an eternal reign. It's a universal reign. It's an absolute reign. It's a gracious reign. So this is the nature of our Christ. And you're going to notice in the first four chapters of Matthew, we just keep talking about Christ because Matthew is wanting you to know, hey, this is the Christ. He was promised. He was miraculously born. He was announced as king. He was despised. We're going to talk about the slaughter of all those children. It is an unbelievable world in which we live that he came to. You read in the second half of chapter 2, many mothers weeped deep tears when Herod unleashed his vengeance trying to snuff this king out. The world is against him, but he has come for us. Let's take some minutes now and just worship him as he is due to be worshipped. His reign right now, as Christians, we don't just simply believe in the actions of the past. We look at the actions of the past, and we rejoice in the present ministry of Christ, who is seated at the right hand of God, far above rule, authority, power, and dominion. For whom? For the church, for us. So let's worship him now. I'll begin, and after a few minutes, Daniel will close us. Father, thank you for making the announcement clear to those of us with eyes to see 
that you have opened our eyes to seeing Christ as King and our deep and passionate need for his glory and his worth. So, Father, give us a hunger that only Christ can satisfy. Thank you.